Well, welcome to another episode of Dispatches from Afghanistan with Holly McKay. Uh, this one's a special one in that uh, we're welcoming Holly back to the United States. She has returned to America after four months in Afghanistan. And um, we're going to find out today, you know, how that experience went. And uh, first of all, uh, you know, welcome back to um, the the first world, Holly. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for your support. And, uh, you've been here about, I think a week now. They're about, yeah, yeah about that. Yep. Yeah. Very good. I mean, you know, so, uh, you know, first question, of course, you know, like, how are you finding it back here as opposed to, uh, over there from the point of view of, um, it's, I mean, they're two different worlds. So it's always a little bit of an adjustment, but, um, yeah, it certainly takes a little bit of time, but it's, uh, it's nice to be back, although I do miss it a lot. So I'm sure I'll, sure I'll be gone again very soon. Yeah. Well, yeah, I'm sure too. I mean, you know, um, okay. So I wanted to ask you some questions about, uh, different phases and, and different aspects of your experience over there. And, um, you know, you're, we'll, we'll take it kind of a little bit in chronological order and, and then finish off with, uh, some, uh, uh, other aspects of, of how things happen and, and the experiences you had over there, because I'm pretty sure people will want to know a little bit more about that. So like, let's start off with, um, your reflections on the experience in the first month that you were there. When you started off in, in, in the country, you went there to do a particular thing and then you wound up in Mazar-e-Sharif. And, uh, so what was that month like? So the first bit, obviously, uh, it was a tenuous situation really across the country. At that point, the Taliban was taking control of most of Afghanistan in, in really rapid pace. Um, I think that came as a surprise, not only to the Afghans, many of the Afghans, but, but to in the U.S. and to the broader intelligence community. But I think there was this sort of feeling that Kabul was certainly not going to fall, at least not anytime soon. Um, but it just, it all seemed to happen very quickly. So uh, the first little bit was kind of trying to assess the situation and see what was falling and, and what uh, preparations the U.S. was doing to leave the country at the end of August. And then, uh, yeah, I was, I was in the north, um, in Mazar Sharif, kind of with the commandos and some of the resistance forces there who really swore black and blue that the, that the country wasn't going to fall, or at least Nazar wasn't going to fall um, anytime soon. But I think, you know, the sort of the rapid pace that happened just just kind of showed you really how entrenched the Taliban was at that point in, in every level of every government and, and military and intelligence. Um, and it just happened so quickly. I remember arriving there early on a Thursday morning and things were very vibrant. Mazar is a very vibrant city, clogged markets, um, lots of life, people out at night, um, just a really a lot happening. And it was hard to imagine that the provinces around it had all fallen uh, within those last couple of weeks before that. And, you know, people were just sort of getting on with it. And I was sort of flabbing. Everybody was sort of warning me, oh, my goodness, you know, it's it's so dangerous for you to be there. And, 
what is going to happen. And at, in the middle of it, it was very hard to, to see, um, any big shift happening, but there were certainly a few strange things that I did observe, such as there was no police, no military presence at all in Mazar. And I remember thinking that was extremely strange given that you know, the Taliban had surrounded a lot of the provinces and I thought it was just bizarre that there wasn't this heavy military presence um, if Mazar was sort of next on the list. And, you know, then the following day was Friday, which is the one weekend day in Afghanistan. Here in the West, we have Saturday, Sunday. Uh, Afghanistan just has Friday. That's the prayer day and that's the only sort of government day off. Um, but, but things naturally a little bit quieter that day, but you started to certainly feel a sense in the air of things being very different. And then, um, yeah, Saturday we, we woke up and I remember just feeling very strange that day. And, and I remember I just, you know, woke up and, and was feeling really depressed and, and really sad. And I couldn't quite put my finger on, you know, what, what was happening. And then it was that night it was, you know, we went about working and people were fleeing and you've seen people flee from outside villages. And then it was that evening, Saturday evening that it really fell and fell very quickly. Um, and suddenly the, you know, I'm watching the Taliban roll around on, on motorcycles and trying to figure out how on earth I was going to get out. And then the following day, the Taliban surrounded uh, the Kabul and then took Kabul. And that was just, it was so unfathomable, I think, to a lot of people. So um, it happened very quickly. And yeah, the next few days were just a matter of trying to figure out how on earth to get out. And eventually that entailed really the only option at that point was to talk to the Taliban. And um, we didn't know how they were going to respond to a foreigner, to a journalist, to a woman. And and thankfully that they were very welcoming and that was a risk worth taking. Um and so we sort of had to go to Uzbekistan temporarily because that was the closest way out. There was no way we could get back to Kabul. And my photographer, Jake, and I then came back in um, fairly promptly after that. We were always determined that, you know, as much as everybody would have loved for me to go home, that that definitely was never in my in my plan. Okay. Yeah. All right. So let, let's, um, let's break that down a little because I, I remember – I remember that, that moment when Mazar fell and you were there and, uh, you were pretty worried, but so like, how long were you worried and, and when did you stop being worried? Because I think people would want to hear a little bit about that. Um, I think I had, you know, obviously that initial sense of fear of my goodness, you know, how am I going to get out of this situation? Um, it was certainly a jarring feeling. I remember that first Saturday night, just feeling, yeah, just very overwhelmed and, uh, really knowing that I, there wasn't really a way out. Um, you know, that I was stuck in this hotel and, and I didn't have, you know, anybody that I could sort of immediately go and, and talk to the Taliban or to try to mitigate the situation in any way. So, um, you know, and unfortunately the, you know, the U S government wasn't particularly helpful in being able to do a rescue at that point, which is understandable because, of what was happening in Kabul and, and sort of the evacuation process beginning and, and the chaos that, that unraveled pretty quickly after that. Um, so it was really up to, to Jake and I to, to make that determination. But yeah, it was, it was certainly a, a unique feeling. I think I've, I've spent many years as a war reporter and, and been in many 
challenging situations, if you will. Um, and this was definitely something very unique to sort of be inside a city as it falls um, and falls, you know, not back into perhaps a friendly hands, but into, you know, what we would consider to be unfriendly hands. And that is, it's a very unique feeling and something that I hadn't experienced. And yeah, that I remember that first night being quite, quite terrified and, and, you know, sleeping on my photographer's floor because I was so worried that the Taliban's, you know, might try to get in and, and we didn't know again what their response would be. Um, but I think, you know, when you do this job, you have to, to recognize that you need to be pragmatic about situations and really just focus on the most important thing at that point was not to panic, but just to use my brain, um, and find a way to get myself out of that situation. And you just have to, you have to channel it and you have to focus and and certainly panicking doesn't do any good to anyone. So I, I don't think I went through a panic phase. It was more just a fear. And then, you know, that, that subsided, I think, or it was sort of exacerbated, I guess, a little bit when Kabul fell, but it it subsided fairly quickly. um, And that, you know, I just had to get to work to, to figure out, how to resolve a situation. And I think that's, that's what, that's what we as war reporters do. And that's an important characteristic of the job. I think if you go into these places and, and you have panic when, when things go very pear shaped, um, you know, you're not going to last long doing it. So, um, that's sort of something we, we have to train our brains to do. All right. Okay. So, um, the next, the end, the end of that phase, of course, was you crossing into Uzbekistan, crossing over the bridge at the border, and then eventually coming back. So, like, what, what was it like setting up the exit? And then the follow-up question to that, of course, is what was it like setting up the return? Um. The exit was, you know, it was a matter of talking to the Taliban. We had to get the Uzbek consulate to open the border for us because at that point the border was closed because so many Afghans had flooded that border the night previously. Many of the soldiers who were, who were running to escape the Taliban had, had sort of flooded the border. So it was closed. Um, so we had to, you know, jump through a few hoops in that. But I think Jake and I, neither of us really wanted to leave at all, but there just wasn't a way for us to get practically uh, to Kabul at that point. Um, obviously there were no flights running and, and we'd taken a commercial airliner to get to Mazar. Um, so the most practical thing to do in that moment was to go, to go North to Uzbekistan. And there was a young Taliban sort of escort that the, a couple of, you know, Taliban vehicles that escorted us, which was um, quite interesting because we sort of got to, first of all, experience the Taliban elders who were the ones who came to the hotel to collect us, to take us to the Uzbek consulate, um, who were very welcoming. And then those that took us to the border were, you know, the Taliban children, if you will, the, the younger set of Talibans. So sort of got this very quick baptism by fire on who they were. And it was a very, um, it was really a very surreal experience because at that point, Afghanistan was really heavily in the news and everybody was sort of focused on what was happening and Americans there and evacuation and, and things. So, um, yeah, it was sort of this bizarre 
experience to sort of be in the thick of it in that way and and also to be able to present a different side to it than what was happening in Kabul as we were sort of really the only foreigners that were in that area or I think really the only foreigners that were in you know a city outside of Kabul uh, as it fell so it was yeah it was as a journalist you you look for those unique stories and I think you, the challenge is you never want to be the story. And so that's something I really grappled with is I didn't want to be the story and suddenly I was the story. Um, so that was, is always an uncomfortable sort of situation to be in. But yeah, we reluctantly and I guess in that moment, um, you know, got out, but, but very quickly, you know, that was with, that was with a lot of, <laughs> I'd almost say sadness as strange as that is, but you know, that's what, strange journalists are strange breeds and when everybody's trying to get out of a place we're usually trying to get back into it so um we decided you know we'd do a little bit of work in in Uzbekistan and also in neighboring Tajikistan and just sort of let some of that chaos that was happening in Kabul at that point um I guess die down a little bit and you know for me it was really that curiosity to get back and see what was happening with the Taliban's how they were ruling the country and what was going to happen in that next chapter so uh, we made the decision to to just go back to that Uzbek border once it had it reopened and basically go in you know just after the Americans had left so um and again that was a very different experience we had to tee up drivers to take us you know, from that border area and make a very long, heinous, terrible journey. It was about 12 hours across the country on really terrible roads to get back to Kabul. Um, but that was an experience in itself. And that was really the first opportunity that we had to travel the, the country by land. I mean, that just wasn't something that was possible at all uh, throughout the U.S. occupation and because the Taliban really had control of most of those key arteries and it would have been far too dangerous um, to have ever sort of attempted that and suddenly it was this entire country that had been opened up to me and I was suddenly able to go everywhere via roads and that was just it was a it was a very surreal that that first um I guess step back in into the country yeah oh I bet it was I mean um I I saw the picture of you going back in the country and there you were walking across the border, getting your passport stamped uh, with a carry-on bag roll, rolling behind you. It was, um, yeah. it was kind of a surreal picture, really. Yeah. Um, but so you spent, so you, so you get back in the country and so you spend the next three months approximately basically interviewing an entire nation in a way that hasn't been accessible for almost 20 years. Yeah. And, um, so what was that like going from place to place, uh, in places that, that only what, uh, the 45 days earlier doing that would have been suicidal. And then, then there you are going everywhere. Yeah. And I think that really is the remarkable aspect of it. I think so much of the way that Americans, you know, see the Taliban even through this era is still viewing them as an insurgency and as this, sort of entity to be extremely terrified of. And, and certainly for some people, I'm sure that's the case, but, but for me, um, you know, it's, we have to remind ourselves, you know, literally overnight, they went from being an insurgency to a government. And 
so therefore, you know, the, their, their element and their approach to, to things changed. And I, I thought that it was really important to, to try to understand that and to try to understand what they wanted, where they were going, what, um, you know, how they viewed the United States, what they wanted from the international community, how they were going to run this country of 38 million people having been essentially a mountain militia for the past two decades. So there's just all these things that just were really just unfathomable and just, you know, even seeing them take over the ministries and who is going to work there and do they have any skills in governing. Um, there, so it really was just this sort of fascinating um, period of time of being able to, to get to know a lot of these Taliban's and to, um, you know, spend time with them in a, in a very different way. And I think that's something that, that we do, we should do as journalists and not necessarily, you know, we don't go in there or at least I don't go in there to give them a voice or to give them a platform or to do any of these sort of buzzwords that get thrown around. I go in there to, to try to be a, a vessel to the other and to try to communicate, um, you know, how they're thinking, because I really think that's the only way we move forward. Um, and we, we learn from the mistakes and we, we understand sort of the quote unquote enemy that we're dealing with is to really understand who they are, where they're from. And, and I really tried with every of the, the many, many Taliban's interviews that I did across the country, I would always ask them, very personal questions like how old they were, where they were from, where they grew up, where they did their training, why they joined the Taliban, when they joined the Taliban, their role in joining the Taliban and how that sort of metastasized over the period of time. Because I think it's very important to understand, you know, how the group was able to attract really so many recruits. Yeah. Well, um, and, and clearly, I mean, a number of reports that you put out during that time was, was prolific. And, um, so here's a, just a little compare and contrast or, or, or if you would rather an assessment, uh, on reflection, what do you think of this militia turned government? And what do you think about their chances to succeed versus? what the old government was in, in terms of its quality and its service to people and, um, uh, and its challenges. How do you, how would you compare the two at this point? I mean, the Taliban is obviously very challenged financially. It's a, it's a very severe economic and humanitarian crisis that is happening in Afghanistan. And the Taliban's are obviously desperate for money. The money was frozen. I guess that moment they really took the presidential palace, which I'm sure they weren't expecting that response to happen. Um, but you know, I, I really do blame the previous government or governments. Uh, there was a couple of different presidents, um, really for just sort of institutionalizing corruption on every possible level in Afghanistan to a disgusting point. And it was something I brought up a lot in that, you know, I take that personally, that was my tax dollars that were being stolen by these corrupt individuals and they were not going to the Afghan people and $2 trillion Kabul should have been Dubai, but it's not. And you have to really look at that and really look at why the U.S. chose not to to fundamentally address these problems as they arose, um, why there was never accountability to the corruption. And I really think that it just sort of created this, 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 you know, thieve narco state in many ways. And I think that it played a huge part in, in 
how the Taliban was able to come back and able able to mobilize much of the population, and they've come back with this uh, you know firm stance that corruption is haram and that it won't fly under them. And and again, they don't have money to be all that corrupt with right now. But I don't know you know what will happen in the future. Um, but I certainly I certainly hope that the U.S. takes that message away, and that if we're ever going to enter a country again, um, you really have to have a very zero to- tolerance policy to corruption um, because if you let it fester to the way that it did, uh, you just look, you know, you, you can't blame people often for wanting to join the Taliban's when they can't even get basic services done each day without paying a bribe. And that's not a way that anybody wants to live and especially poor Afghans and, and, the United States really just kind of opened the floodgates to this and created an artificial economy um, that just uh, was just reeking with corruption. And I think that um, it played a, a really, really critical role in in the government's fall. Ah, there you go. Well, um, that is a uh, an interesting uh, viewpoint of essentially how. These guys were this, they basically in, inherited a solution to problems that were created over 20 years. And, um, here we go. Um, so take that back now and, and let's, let's, let's step back from, uh, Afghanistan as a, cause you're a journalist and, and, uh, and in the world of journalism. There's truth and perception that kind of fight with each other from, uh, 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 constantly. And uh, the perception of Afghanistan in, in the U.S. is, is clouded in, uh, the mysticism of the last 20 years in particular. And the truth that you are uncovering sometimes doesn't exactly jive with the, with the perceptions that people have. So as a, as a journalist, what did you see the, the, the the balance between what you were seeing on the ground and the perceptions that you were seeing going on in other parts of the world and and how did you handle the role of being a vessel uh because i mean essentially you're you were for 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 better or worse the only american journalist there for a while yeah i think well the ones sort of stayed there were other journalists that came sort of in and out or for sort of stints but to kind of stay several months for the long haul. Um, I think, you know, there was very few Americans that, that did that. Um, and I think, yeah, I think that, that, you know, if I was just to read whatever I saw on Twitter, I would think there'd be this absolute genocide that was going on and, and people being ripped from their homes and slaughtered. And certainly there are cases of, of those terrible things happening, but that was very, very much the exception certainly not the norm. And I think, um, you know, the U.S. or the mainstream media was just sort of relying on secondhand information or somebody's tweet or a photo or things that just, that there that, were somebody's very skewed opinion or someone who had already fled the country during the evacuation. And, and it just sort of created a very skewed picture that I don't, I don't think was accurate. I think, there's a lot of people out there who, who wanted the Taliban to be committing, um, all sorts of atrocities against the Afghan people as they'd done as an insurgency. But the reality was they weren't an insurgency or they aren't an insurgency anymore. They are sort of for better or for worse trying to become some kind of government. Um, and so sort of the, you know, the, the attacks and things, they just weren't happening on the scale that much of the media wanted you to believe. Um, 
And so, you know, I think that's really important to acknowledge that. And it was, it was dizzying to me to, to sort of see a lot of the coverage that was happening. Um, and certainly the Taliban's need to be held to account and, and anything that they do do needs to be, to be amplified. But I also think a lot of it was just was sort of blown extremely out of proportion. Um, and that we weren't, weren't taking into account just, just the reality. That's it just the reality on the ground. Um, and I think it's certainly in this day and age, it's easier to have a clickbait headline. Nobody wants to, to see something, you know, uh, something, you know, you're certainly going to get a lot of clicks on, on a story that is, is extremely salacious um, or that really exaggerates what happened. And I just saw a lot of that. And I saw a lot of foreign sort of influence and meddling and, and, and people driving the narrative that weren't in Afghanistan. And I just think it got incredibly skewed and it was very hard for me to, to argue back against it. And when you do just simply try to present the truth, you get all sorts of haters that come out and attack you and say, well, you, you're only saying these nice things because, you know, you're working for the Taliban and doing all this sort of nonsense, just, you know, stuff that you don't even need to defend yourself for. Um, I think all of us journalists who work in these places know how to, to do our jobs. And, and certainly the Taliban's never made a single comment to me about, about any of, you know, specific coverage. So, um, I think that's just sort of a cop out for a lot of, a lot of people to, to try to make themselves, uh, sound more superior than they were and to sort of justify their, their keyboard warriorship. But it, it was frustrating to me because, you always believe in painting an accurate picture. And I think just on a overall scale, the picture often wasn't accurate. Um, yep. Uh, well, I mean, one can see that happening in pretty much any area of journalism now in, in terms of the spin that's put on it in order to make it more readable or more popular or, or um, I- increase viewership or whatever. But, um, but so do you think the work that you did there, uh, helped, uh, temper the, uh, the, the picture and put better perspective in it as you begin to look, or is it too soon for you to know? I don't know. All I can do as a journalist is, is do the story, put it out, hopefully generate some awareness, but be, you know, beyond that, my, my job is not to to present a solution to a problem. It's literally just to, to illuminate a problem and what happens beyond that. Um, it will be hubris for me to, to pretend that I could do any more than that. So, you know, that, that's up to the, up to the viewer. I think I, I hope that it gave people a rich understanding and, and, you know, there's a lot of people who will take it on board and a lot of people who will dismiss it because it doesn't fit the narrative that they want. So, um, you know, that's, that's very much on them. Okay, very good. All right. So let's turn a little bit subject to uh, reflections on uh, uh, beyond the work, just the community. And, and in particular, I, I'm, I'm curious to hear your reflections on what was the, 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 the press corps that you lived with for the, the three months. What were they like? What, what went on from the point of view? Uh, of, I mean, we just, you're, you're in your own that. little bubble and. Yeah, I think we, we lived in a house in Kabul. Different journalists would often come in for a week, two weeks, um, mostly from Europe, um, which is always nice to see other people. And, and I think some were TV, some were print, you know, mostly freelancers kind of working on their own thing. Um, so yeah, I think, you know, it's always nice to, to see other people from other countries. And um, what I found to be really interesting was that you know, the journalists coming through for the most part 
were journalists that haven't covered Afghanistan before. They were journalists that was their first time in coming. Um, so really the only Afghanistan they know is the Afghanistan under the Taliban, um, you know, which is interesting because re- really right in that very beginning after the fall, we were seeing so many really the old school journalists, people um, that had covered, you know, Afghanistan for, for years or even decades go- going back to the Soviet invasion in the in the 70s so you're really you know seeing all these kind of old school journalists which was kind of neat at the at the Mujahid press conferences and then you know those people quickly kind of left and then you started to see this this younger subset of journalists coming in really for the first time which was interesting and yeah to me that was interesting because I I question I I just wonder you know what what their baseline is because they didn't know the Afghanistan before um so yeah, you're sort of seeing this new new crop of journalists that are, are coming in, and a lot of the older journalists and ones that really had even been living in Afghanistan for a long time, you know, they were they were all kind of leaving and and going home and and you know looking to a new place or or whatever the next assignment was going to be. Um, so in many ways, that was sort of a, a bit of a journalistic end of an era, I think, in many ways. Um, but yeah, so a lot of different people sort of came through to the house. Uh, throughout the time there and and yeah I thought that was always really cool and and people had their own things that they were working on and um yeah just going about and and doing their thing yeah well so there's a little bit of insight into the 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 day-to-day of uh the journalist cadre in in the middle of a of a country that's undergoing change so last question and uh, I think the, the the most personal question of of all this is, uh, as an individual, how do you think you were affected by this from the time you went in to the time you came out? How, did, did it did it change you from uh, who you were when you got on the plane and left? Los Angeles, because I, I, you know, I remember I dropped you off at the airport, I think. So uh, on your way out there. So, you know, how did, how did, how did you change? Were you affected? I mean, I think you always change and you should always be growing and certainly spending, um, you know, four or five months in a, you know, country that had just, you know, was a really, this incredible slice of history um, that had gone from one thing to another overnight, you know, it has to change you when you become very immersed in it. And it certainly did. And I I learned a lot. It's, it's very hard for me sometimes to wrap my head around, you know, I think how much I've learned in that time. Um, And I think that, yeah, you not only do you grow, but, you can understand things on a very deep level that is, that's hard to, you know, explain. And, and for me, I always try to look at things, um, out of a geopolitical framework. I think so much of what we see and read is, is very dry kind of policy. Um, and, and you know, over the years, it's sort of this idea that you can't be especially compassionate, um, in your reporting. And I really, I don't, I don't take you know, cause I'm a human first. And so anything that I do is always going to come from that place of humanity. And I think that you're going to reach a lot more people and your message is going to resonate a lot stronger when you can present stories of individuals and, and enable audiences and readers to really connect with that. And that's something that I really tried to do. And so my work in Afghanistan, I, I hope enabled me to, you know, to find that deeper sense of compassion and to also, um, you know, again, just, just understand a place, understand dynamics on a different level. Um, 
but yeah, those experiences always affect you. There's certainly a lot of guilt that comes with leaving. Um, certainly, you know, there's so many people desperate to leave that I, I wish that I could help and I, I just can't. And even now it just gets so many messages from people just desperate, um, every day, all day. And it's hard because I, I can't help them. And frankly, that's not my job to help them in, you know, I don't facilitate rescues. I can point them in the right direction to people who do do that. Um, but my job is to, is to tell a story and to highlight their cases. And, and that is, that is what I can do. And, and I think it's just important to remember that um, because we can't do everything. I'm not a surgeon. I'm not a, a rescuer. I'm not a, you know, and I, but my job is a journalist. Um, and so that's always, something that I have to keep reminding myself of when you have those, those moments. Um, but yeah, you, you absolutely, I, I feel incredibly appreciative of that experience, but I also feel very guilty in that, you know, my life isn't more valuable than theirs. I just, I happen to be born in a different place. Um, and that was no doing of my own. And yet that, you know, in itself enabled me to, to kind of come and go freely uh, from Afghanistan. And that is a, certainly a privilege that a lot of, well, you know, that Afghans themselves don't have. All right. Well, and on that note, it's quite a reflection of uh, four months worth of time in a part of the world that uh, underwent a significant amount of upheaval. Um, I think everybody's glad that you're, uh, for, for the experience and the insights that you brought and, uh, and glad that you're, and even with the guilt, uh, uh, glad that you're back in, um, in the United States and can carry on with being the journalist that you are. So thank you very much, Holly McKay, uh, and, um, for the, these reflections on your time in Afghanistan. Thank you, Dennis. I appreciate it. All right.